Welcome to this last panel, spectator panel of Tuesday at Conservative Party Conference. To let you guys know what we're doing here, we normally record these policy podcasts within Fraser Nelson's office uh, at the Spectator, but we thought, you know, given this one coincides with conference, why not do it in front of a live audience and you guys can give us your questions. You know, instead of shouting at your podcast player, you can ask us here directly. Um, and uh, don't worry if you don't have questions, but I might pick on people even if you don't have questions. So. Um, so to start with, let me just set the scene. These days, the Conservative Party is not just associated with the colour blue. It's also the winner of the red wall seats, the pursuer of a green agenda. But do these new identities achieved under Boris Johnson all fit together? In particular, critics often label tackling the climate change problem uh, as a middle-class pursuit, and not what real people around the country are concerned with. And indeed, the Treasury and base have put the costs of net zero at £70 billion a year. So what does this mean for the less well-off in society, especially those in the Tories' new constituencies in the Red Wall? So to discuss, I'd like to introduce my panel. To my left, I've got Andrew Griffith, MP, who is the, government, uh, who is the government's net zero business champion and was recently appointed the Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Prime Minister, so very much appreciate his time here. Um, Sarah Lonlins is the Chief Executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, it's a think tank, and formerly Director of IPPR North. And here I've got Nick Baird, who is the Group Director of Corporate Affairs for Centrica, who are kindly sponsoring this panel and this podcast. So we're not going to go for opening remarks because I think it's a bit stayed, but I'll just start with a few general questions uh, so that people can you know, set their store um, and set the scene a bit as well. So Andrew, to start with, um, if I may, with you, how do you think a climate agenda can avoid the pitfalls of costing less well-off areas disproportionately more? And what are the potential pitfalls and how do we avoid them? Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Cindy. Um, Look, let me, let, me, let me start with a, a little bit of controversy, if you like. First of all, I think the pitfalls are overstated. I think we're at the start of a disruptive, transformative industrial revolution. Um, inevitably, at the start, one doesn't know all of the answers. There will be the, the odd misstep along the way. We have to make peace with that. Um, there are costs from doing nothing, and those costs can equally be very disproportionately felt uh, on particular segments of the community. Um, I don't want to overly contemporise, uh, but if we look at the impact of where short, long supply chains and the, what's the opposite of resilience, the fragility <laughs> of, of long supply chains, um, they're often leaving left-behind communities uh, to face the, the biggest brunt of that. Um, so I think it's more even than we say. It's become a bit of a trope about, you know, red wall communities and things. I think it's much more subtle than that. I think the opportunity side of the ledger, which in fairness wasn't in your question, uh, but the opportunity side of the ledger is really quite exciting mm -hmm. uh, and offers the possibility of those communities to reconnect, to experience a new renaissance, uh, new ways of living, um, and real opportunities for prosperity, in often in communities that have been in decline or had their core industries in decline for a very significant period of time. Um, I'll conclude with one tiny bridge to levelling up. I mean, levelling up, um, to me, is as much about using gigabit speed broadband to remove the friction of distance as it is about a wonderful gigafactory 
in Blythe. You know, they're both manifestations of that, uh, but I would define it and try and look at it very holistically. Um, and again, those are things that can unite our journey to a decarbonised economy with levelling up and with making the lives of all of our citizens, regardless of place, uh, a better place to, uh, to live. Great. Thank you, Angie. Um, Sarah, if I can go to you next... Give us your thoughts on what Andrew's just said, but also what are the ways in which that the red wall areas, the northern regions and so on, can contribute to the net zero agenda? So those opportunities that Andrew just talked about, um, for example, the universities that the north can offer on that stream. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, I think this is where the, the sort of discussion on the north, on the north and, and the red wall comes into its own, because actually the red wall is quite green already. Uh, you know, the green, uh, the green infrastructure that we have in the north is quite significant. So we have five out of, the, the, of England's national parks. We've got 88% of, uh, of wetland peaked in the whole of England. Uh, we've got 30% of all water courses as well. And actually, the north is very rich when it comes to our, our water resources, and, uh, and, and potentially that's a, a, an export base in the longer term. Um, so, you know, the north has already got massive opportunities in terms of its natural assets, and it's how do we harness those to start to create jobs to provide opportunities for business growth uh, and also to, to really provide a carbon sink uh, to, to mop up a lot of the carbon that, that we know is causing so much damage at the current time. I think the other big opportunity, um, particularly in, in terms of uh, carbon and uh, new jobs, is around localism. Uh, and actually, we now are starting to see devolution in the north of England, particularly really starting to punch above its weight. Um, uh, if you just have to look at what Ben Hutchin is doing in the Tees Valley, uh, but other mayors as well in, in West Yorkshire and uh, in Greater Manchester here, really trying to use their own influence to, to, to make the case and to build the demand on the market for green jobs in the longer term. And the other kind of big opportunity is uh, around public procurement. Uh, so we've done a lot of work looking at this and actually the, when the, the public sector invests in transport infrastructure uh, or, or even when local councils invest uh, or spend their money, how can they do so to help make the market? Because a lot of the times the green job opportunities uh, are still untested and why would businesses invest in those unless the market has been proven? So public expenditure can really help to, to build the demand and to de-risk uh, the, the green job opportunity for, for businesses in, in localities. Uh, and at the minute, there are lots of... I mean, 99.8% of businesses in the north of England are small to medium enterprises. Um, but yet they don't necessarily understand the full benefits of, of green jobs um, or the opportunities that exist therein. And so we've got to kind of help make the market and, and de-risk it to sort of bring them to the opportunities. And there's also, I think, a real role for further education. So further education is going to be critical in terms of the transition to green jobs. There will be lots of people in work now who will need to retrain, reskill. And their first port of call is going to be FE and higher education. Uh, and so we've got to make sure that FE has got the, the funding that it needs to be able to, to do that, uh, but also that they've got the autonomy um, from the Department of Education to be able to, to run extra courses, um, to be able to provide information to their students about opportunities in low carbon, in, in low carbon sectors. Uh, and at the minute, you've got lots of people who are having to, who have lost their jobs through COVID, uh, who are easily transferable into low skills. Through, for example, people who have worked in refrigeration uh, or, uh, or heating engineers who have perhaps lost their jobs during this crisis. Then actually, they're, one of, they're some of the people who can transfer most easily 
into these jobs. So I think those are some of the real opportunities, and I think education, particularly, I would say, further education uh, rather than higher education, got a critical role to play in this. Fascinating, Sarah, and thank you for giving so many colourful examples as well. Um, Nick, finally to you, is Centrica mindful of these offerings from, from the north of England? And also from Centrica's experience, what elements of the green transition could particularly benefit these areas? Yeah, no, no we absolutely are, and, and let me give you kind of three areas which we're involved in uh, where there's a disproportionate benefit to engaging in uh, less prosperous areas, shall we say. So decarbonisation of homes. So uh, in order to, to stick to our net zero pathway over the next 20 years or less, we're going to need to replace uh, you know, all the conventional gas boilers in people's homes with heat pumps or hydrogen. Um, we're also going to need to... Um, uh, take really strong steps on energy efficiency uh, in our housing stock. Um, and as we all know, um, we have particularly drafty homes in a cold, um, in a coldish uh, country. Um, so there are multiple benefits from both of those, um, which disproportionately um, uh, improve life uh, in less prosperous areas. So, you know, the biggest gains in terms of insulating housing stock is, by definition, poor housing stock. So the work that we do through our PH Jones brand with uh, social housing um, has delivered, on average, a £340 a year benefit reduction in bills um, to people in, in, in that housing out of around, you know, bills of just over 1,000 years. So it's, you know, we're talking about 30% potentially. Um, uh, and then, you know, this is a huge area for um, new, well-paid jobs. Um, uh, you know, we, 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 we had Prime Minister and Chancellor with us two weeks ago in, in, in Leicester to announce the fact that we are going to create a minimum of 3,500 apprenticeships in the rest of this decade, and we're going to kind of skill um, those apprentices up to do heat pumps um, and hydrogen-ready boilers. Um, and... Um, you know, the, 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 this is not about the southeast and London. This is required right through the country, everywhere. They'll be being trained in our academies in Hamilton, Leicester, Thatcham, Dartford, everywhere. So that, that's that's one area. A, a, a second area is 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 um, uh, large organisations. So we work, of course, with you know big companies. Uh, we work with housing trusts. Uh, we work with the armed forces. We work with hospitals. In fact, we work with 90 hospitals, um, including two here in Greater Ma Manchester, Withenshaw and, and uh, Withington Community Hospital, to reduce their energy bills and reduce their emissions. And there's some f f phenomenal technology in this area now. It's not just about um, insulation and energy-efficient products and processes. It's about replacing their own generation with greener forms of generation, and a lot of that is manufactured for us in Salford, just around the corner. Um, and um, it's about intelligent um, uh, uh, relationships with the grid, uh, where you only draw energy um, at, uh, low, uh, at low cost uh, times, and you then push from your own generation surplus back into the grid. Um, again, you know, we, we, we reckon we've, we, we've extrapolated from actual customer data um, uh, right across three sectors, industrial, healthcare, um, hospitality and leisure. And there's, um, you know, even with current technology, and it's improving all the time, you know, it's a billion pounds of savings on energy bills um, uh, uh, across uh, a year. Um, and then uh, here in Manchester, the equivalent is 100 million pounds in savings. And that, you know, that, that's 
improves industrial productivity because your costs go down. Uh, it, it allows you to use that money productively uh, for other things like healthcare, local services, and so on. And just finally, sorry if I've got... Uh, That's um, all right. So this kind of picks up um, one of the things that Andrew was talking about. So, you know, decarbonising, um, you know, our industrial history in a way. So, so fossil fuel assets, um, heavy industry, um, which obviously is hugely challenged by the, by the green transition mm -hmm. in principle. But if you look at what is happening in the Humber region... Um, so, as part of the East Coast clusters, um, the Humber region is bidding into to government for support for hydrogen generation and storage, um, carbon capture and, and storage. Um, and you know, th th these are these are massive, massive um, projects which will draw in a huge amount of private investment. The Humber region reckons will. Um, save 55,000 jobs and create another 40,000. Our own particular role in this is with um, the rough field, which is off the uh, coast of Hull. Um, and it started its industrial life as a gas production field. Um, more recently, it's uh, uh, been a, a natural gas storage field. Of course, it can be repurposed for hydrogen. And if we take the view, um, as we certainly do, and so do the Committee on Climate Change and, and National Grid, that hydrogen will be a big, big part of our transition... Um, you will need um, uh, storage for uh, security of supply and, and cost efficiency. That will create 2,000 jobs. It'll, it'll draw in £1.5 billion of private investment. By the way, we don't need government money for that. £1.5 billion of private investment, um, and it will uh, create 2,000 jobs in the construction phase, 350 directly operating onwards, um, and then 2,000 in the supply chain to support it. And it should uh, provide you know, lots of opportunities for fabrication and decommissioning yards around the country, whether we're talking Teesside, Birkenhead, Clyde, Northern Ireland. I mean, huge, huge uh, opportunities. And, and, and these opportunities often disproportionately in less prosperous areas. Great. Fascinating. Um, Andrew, if I can go back to you on one of the things that Nick picked up on, which is the gas boilers. I feel like that is going to be something that's already a little bit controversial, bubbling under the surface. The government's not yet published its home and heating strategy, which it was meant to last month. What is the government doing in terms of retrofitting these things? Because you hear in focus groups and in polls that a lot of people are concerned about how expensive it will be for their own households when it comes to replacing their gas boilers. And is the government going to help on that? Well, I think I'd be concerned if I, if I took as read, as gospel, everything that's been written in the press, which I think What is, are you saying about the press? Well, excluding certain, certain fine elements of the press. But, you know, look, of, of course, if people read a bold headline that says you've got to, in extremis, you know, rip out your existing happy gas boiler, which you, know, you may have only replaced a year or two ago, uh, and you've got to be compelled to invest in some big numbers uh, replacement, of course people are going to be con concerned, uh, regardless of where they live or, or wherever their income is. But we're replacing, on a normal replacement cycle, around one and a half million boilers every year. I expect Nick's business is a, is a big part of that. Um, there's a journey anyway to efficiency. Um, consumers are going to have more choices. Um, for some, the answer will be mixing uh, new different forms of gas into the grid. Uh, for others, it will still be electrification. Remember, not every home anyway is connected to the gas grid uh, as it is today. Most are. 
Um, and Octopus have recently, Octopus Energy, one of the disruptors uh, who are retailing electricity and have just opened a new uh, arm to supply, uh, air source heat pumps, um, predict that the cost of those will halve in, uh, within five years. So you're taking you know, points in time that are not mature, um, the scale at the moment, I mean, I assume, Nick, 98% of the, the volume today is going in our existing gas boilers. Mm-hmm. But if we flip that over, as we can over time, we'll see that cost curve reduce, just as we see in every other walk of life. Um, to use an example that we're all much more familiar with, it's a bit more colloquial now, is the electric vehicles. We've already reached the point, I'm told, by uh, those who, who model, model these that we've reached price parity over the life of an electric vehicle versus a combustion vehicle. Now, there's still a different profile of that. There are people who are involved in bringing forward new financial products that will smooth that as well. Um, I know that a lot of finance providers are also looking at how they can help smooth the journey for individual consumers to potentially a new, more efficient way getting their energy, which you know, may well benefit the consumer as well. So we could be talking about products that will help consumers save money as well as save their energy impact. Uh, and my, my key point is, look, we're just at the foothills of this. You know, great firms like Nix uh, can come along, can operationalize this, can help businesses move down the cost curve. And we obviously need to keep an eye on the fair and just transition and make sure that there aren't societal impacts that no one would wish to see. Mm. Will those costs come down in time enough for 2050, which is when we want to achieve net zero in 29 years? It's not too far away. No, 100% they will come down enough. I mean, this is just just the law of of supplying things at volume, at deploying all... You know, we've currently got factories churning out. The technologies are relatively mature. Um, But as you shift the volume, you put scale behind things just as when Henry Ford made his Model T car. You know, it's transformationally cheaper in today's terms to buy a vehicle than it was then. And that's just the function of of scale and tooling up factories and making those work. And and people are doing that right now. I mean, Mm. there are firms in the UK right now doing that. And will it be still afforded, will it be paid by households rather than by the government or... Well, I'm sure the answer is a mixture of both mm-hmm. because there always tends to be a mixture of both, Cindy. Um, and the government is currently, through the Green Home Scheme, working with local authorities and social housing providers um, to, to make exactly that transition. So um, I, I just don't know. I can't front-run what's in any spending review. Um, but I'm sure the answer will be a combination of that. In all of these cases, I would advocate let's let private risk capital go as far as it possibly can because it is the thing that's delivered us a vaccine it's the thing that puts food on the table every day um, and has increased the life human lifespan over uh, the last couple of centuries so that that force is much greater than the government coming forward with individual schemes but of course everyone's conscious of social justice and there will be there will be roles i'm sure within that and Sarah, how much does cost come up in conversations you have with people? Because the GMB union, not, not a source that's commonly referred to at Conservative Party conference probably, but they have looked into it, estimates that net zero will cost more than £50,000 for each family in the UK. 
Yeah, I think cost definitely comes into it. Um, I mean, from our own figures, we know that um, for social housing alone in the north, it's going to cost uh, around £24 billion to retrofit um, the, the homes in, in, in the north. So and, and I think the, the point about costs and will they come down is an interesting one, and, and particularly the comparison with the vaccine. I mean, one of the reasons we were able to get the vaccine so quickly was that government were prepared to, to help and put the investment in to, to, to bring the cost down in a time period which will allow us to, to get vaccinated and stop the spread of, 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 this, of this terrible disease. So I think that's an example of where government intervention can, in an emergency, in a crisis, a government investment and government push can really make a massive difference. And I think similarly with the climate, with the climate crisis, because, you know, let's face it, it, it is a bit of a crisis. Um, we're seeing in the north, you know, flooding re reoccurring on a more frequent basis and, and in many other parts of of the UK and indeed the world. So we are in a crisis at the moment. So I would argue that surely government should be playing a, a quite an assertive role to help lower those costs at a, at a faster rate. Um, I think the work that is being done in terms of you know, the support for, for social housing and, and we're working with local authorities is really important. Social housing in particular is really leading the charge in the north on this. And they are doing a lot of work to train up their staff in, in green home skills. And, and, and let's just remind ourselves of the scale of that challenge. So there are 100,000 uh, accredited gas engineers in, in the UK. Um, there are 600 accredited engineers to, to, to fit, to fit um, heat pump systems. So, uh, so social housing is doing a huge amount to try and train up their own staff in those skills. And they're also using their, their own investment to help bring the costs down uh, in, on their, in their own stock and uh, in their own areas. So I think they're, they're, you know, government's doing something, but there's a huge amount more that could be done. And vitally, what we need is long-term commitment. Because at the minute, a lot of the funds have been fairly short-term. There have been a lot of issues with the Green Home Grant for domestic users. And so some sort of longevity and real commitment to it, I think, could make a massive difference and massive economic benefits, potentially, as well. And Nick, let me pick you up on something else you mentioned, which is electric vehicles. Um, we're seeing the electric vehicle rollout. Obviously, there's a petrol... I'm not allowed to call it a ban, I think. Is that right? Ban on new petrol cars but in 2030. Um, but already we're seeing a disparity in regional installation of charging points. So, for example, uh, per 100,000 people, there are 69 public charging points in London, whereas there are only 19 per 100,000 in North Yorkshire and Humber. Why is that? Yeah, no, no I, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, just... Step and just say say what we do in this area, and then kind of build into your question. So, I mean, basically, what we do is roll out. We're one of those who are rolling out the EV charging infrastructure. We also have one of the biggest um, commercial fleets of vehicles, and we're electrifying that. Um, and you know, looking to the future, um, we're we're heavily engaged in um, the process by which an electric vehicle becomes an integral part of a, as a, of your house as a single. Um, uh, energy unit generating, storing, and then and, and then using, and these are all incredibly exciting areas. Um, we've rolled out now 18,000 charging points, and and you, you know it's nothing like enough. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, 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 government is doing well with with its grant programs, but they really need to be driven. We need public open access charge charging infrastructure. We need it to be easy to use, easy to find. Um, and, and, and we need it to um, uh, uh, be associated with a much more flexible infrastructure in terms of the energy generation. I think there are probably kind of three things which we could do, and you're absolutely right, 
um, about the, you know, the distribution, three things that we could do more. So the government grant programs do need to have a major focus um, on less prosperous areas in, in terms of where, where they're rolled out. We need to have a bigger focus on um, uh, uh, electric charging infrastructure for pu public transport. And we've worked with Manchester here with buses and, and, and Dundee and other, uh, and, and other places. And, and the third area, I think companies can lead on this. Uh, companies with big, large mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, commercial fleets. Um, we've got 11,000 um, vans, cars, lorries. Um, we've just bought, or we just ordered another 3,000 um, of Vauxhall um, Vivaro E's. But one of the things that companies do when they lead in this area is they create a second-hand market as well for electric vehicles. And again, that gives uh, yeah. an opportunity. But you're right, it does need to, need to work out. We, we actually did a, um, a uh, Land's End to John O'Groats uh, EV journey. Um, did it break down? Or? Uh, <laughs> no, no, didn't break down, did it, did it Alex? Um, uh, uh, but it was exactly to do that. It was to go to parts of the country where there isn't sufficient um, charging infrastructure to present, put pressure on um, the local councils to focus on it and to kind of t bring home to the, some of the benefits. Because, you know, one of the other things, and, and, and it goes um, back to the point that, um, that, that um, you know, An A Andrew was making in terms of cost um, of uh, uh, replacing boilers. I mean, it's important to look at the whole economic picture, which is the jobs that this creates. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, it, 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 you know, it's phenomenal, the opportunity for well-paid, highly skilled jobs on EV charging, um, replacing boilers with um, hydrogen or, or heat pumps. Um, th th these, th these are really good jobs for the future, and they're distributed right across the UK. If, if I may, Cindy, yeah, when it... When it one of the, because there, there are generous grants for the installation of EV charging points. I would say we're at a point actually where it's more overcoming the other points of friction in the system. I mean, one reason why we have lots of charging points relatively in London is, of course, in London, very few people have off street parking. So having a public charging infrastructure in inner cities is incredibly important. It should be a priority because we've got to uh, improve air quality, if nothing else. Uh, that's a bit different in different areas, uh, but also, I mean, it does always strike me, right? I mean, I think over three quarters of all local authorities have passed resolutions declaring a climate emergency, right? Understandably. Um, but of course, that's no use if you then go back to when someone comes along saying, can I put a charging post on my lamppost or on my drive? You know, you go back to the same old playbook of, well, sorry, it'll take 14 weeks to get through the local planning authority. You, you've got to, you know, those two things have to square. It's not, there is a role for, for, for money. There is a lot of money flowing in at the top of the system. Um, but in some cases, we're now up against barriers on skills, you know, physicality. Technology is rapidly being eliminated as a barrier. Um, and often it is just capability. So the, the charging infrastructure was quite fragmented. I mean, when it was rolled out, every local authority wanted to have their own different provider. It went through procurement. We've ended up with a real patchwork quilt. Uh, now you're seeing companies, you know, big companies, um, you know, BP and Shell are both in that space. They're not alone. But a bit of consolidation, having things like the right to roam extended, so getting the legislation framework. Sorry, it's quite a detailed answer. But often now the barriers are a little bit more nuanced than just, like, government must do something. <laughs> um, 
I'm mindful of hogging all of your time. The audience might have questions. So before I go to more of my questions, does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask any of our panellists or all of them? Uh, we've got a microphone at the back as well. So if you'd like to wait for that. Yep, the gentleman in the front. Thank you very much. Thank you to the, to the entire panel. Um, uh, regarding the, the, the title of uh, the conference and whether or not this is an oxymoron, and uh, uh, Cindy asked at the beginning if the Tory party could cope with all of this, um, with all of these different uh, agendas. I mean, part of uh, what was uh, One Nation Conservatism was to preserve uh, the well-being of the people and our environment. I mean, when the Israeli came to power in uh, 1874, uh, he instructed his uh, local uh, um, uh, president of the local board to uh, make sure that the factories did not affect how people lived, and that the people had uh, have uh, had uh, access to um, to a, a better environment, uh, an environment that was more livable. So I think this is at the roots of foundation conservatism. And if the conservative party wants to follow that uh, tradition, I think this is something that they should embrace. Brilliant, more of a statement, but let me turn that into a question. <laughs> yeah, go on. Cheers, thank you. Uh, Adam Gagan, American Express, thank you very much for the panel. Um, we just recently extended our commitment to hit net zero by 2035 to our supplier base uh, because we think our colleagues want it, our customers want it, and it's great business sense. Very frankly, though, it means we need to invest a lot of money up front, right, to make that happen. And that seemingly is the same challenge the country faces and the world faces. So again, linking back to the question here, at the end of the day, as the government will have to invest a lot of money, as has been announced over this conference, but increasingly more over the next 5, 10, 15 years. How do you think we're going to bring the people whose maybe priorities are more prosaic, like their potholes on the streets or the class sizes mm -hmm. their kids are in, with us on that journey? And again, interested in all the comments from the panel, but particularly, again, uh, Andrews. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that question. And Andrew, if I can just add something to that before you answer it. Um, it's a really interesting polling coming out from James Johnson, Theresa May's former pollster, who talked in focus groups. And some of the words that the Blythe Valley voters used to describe net zero were lunacy, unachievable, and one said, we voted for a conservative government and it seems we're getting a green gut party. Now, in my introduction, You're I talked... on the fence, then. <laughs> in my introduction, I talked about the £70 billion a year that the Treasury and Bay's estimate net zero is going to take. So how do you get those voters on side? Um, we empower those voters. Um, this, this can feel a very alien agenda. I mean, I... I one of the things I hope I bring to my role as net zero champion is a... Uh, a, a deep lack of, lack of long-term understanding of sustainability because you, you can't take people on a journey if you can't communicate with them. And if we can't simply give people choices, you know, conservatives believe in giving people choice. I mean, it's part of our political philosophy. There are different ways to do this. We can all glue our hands down to the road um, or we can liberate the power of choice um, and freedom um, and we can go through this as a transition as human society always has. Now, we really are at the very start of this journey, so it's not surprising at all that there is a great level of dissonance. There's an asymmetry between the level of knowledge of you know, this panel, people who operate in this domain, some of the early firms that are moving in this space, um, and ordinary folk. 
who lack the nomenclature, um, who don't see any kite marks to, to explain to them what's a good choice and a bad choice. Uh, they don't have measurement tools. Um, it's very hard amongst experts to agree what your carbon footprint is. You know, you talked about extending it to your supply chain. Um, to do that, you first of all got to understand what your supply chain is and, and map that. And as a brilliant leading company that's democratizing finance, you know, you do a brilliant job of that about pounds and decimal places. We've all got to do a similarly profound job in understanding what our carbon supply chain is. You know, where are the goods that we are buying coming from? How much of that is the transportation component? And how are those things transported? Is it coming by air? Is it coming by a new marine hydrogen-powered ship? Um, So it it demands a great deal of us. And it is an industrial revolution, and we're barely through, you know, the first industrial revolution. We're sitting here in Manchester, uh, which was one of the birthplaces of it. And we're sitting in architecture surrounded by it, so it's not even... Uh, fully over. So that's not to say just like let's bear with us, uh, but it is to say we've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of work to do as a leading company, as a leading brand. And you wouldn't be in business together with so many of our leading companies and the brands that we all buy if you weren't exceptionally good at communicating with your customers and giving them a proposition that they can understand. But it's not easy. That's the job. That's the day job. That's the job of work. I'm hugely heartened in this role that we now have over 50 of the largest companies in the UK, but a huge tail, of course, of suppliers. They're doing what you're doing. They're working with their supply chain. They're standing up at their supply chain conferences. They're putting their arms around suppliers and starting that process of education. And again, it will take time. And we're all going to go on that journey together. The way we solve the climate crisis, in my view, is that power of consumer choice, is that power of business and capital, of course, working together with government, because we're a society and a community. But it's actually the power of storytelling. That's how we rubbed sticks together and made fire and someone looked over our shoulder and copied that. That power of telling each other stories You know, you look at it, the first person that gets an electric car in their street. You know, the neighbours all crowd round. Oh, what's that? That's a bit different. Where's the engine? Um, You know, you get a charging point. Someone asks you about that. Someone in your town or village gets an air source heat pump. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Where's the boiler gone? Mm -hmm. How much did that cost? Who did you buy it from? So we're going to go on that journey. And that's how human civilizations move forward. Now, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you know, different countries will go on this journey at different speeds, different communities, different localities. That is where you come back to the opportunity. Because if we're all going to do this as a human race, as we did with the first Industrial Revolution, the UK has formidable natural advantages. Nick talked about some. The North Sea, the seabed, the coastal plain, the, the fact that we have relatively shallow 12,000 kilometres of coastline. We have some formidable natural advantages. And my hypothesis, and that I believe of the Prime Minister, which is if we can go early, if we can make the most of this opportunity, we can build businesses that will serve our own communities here, but will then, as the world goes on this journey, look to create huge export markets in some of the you know, biggest domains of human economic activity for the next century. 
That's the, that's the thesis. That's the prospectus. That's what I think we can do. Of course, it's incumbent on all of us to try and get that right. Sarah, would you like to answer the question as well? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is something that we have, in the work that we've done on this, we've come across uh, time and time again. There's a, lot, a huge amount of concern, um, particularly about this discussion around the just transition and, and people losing their jobs, basically, because you know, we don't want, no longer want um, gas-fired power stations or, or we no longer want you know, carbon-emitting steel production, and that's a big, a big topic of conversation in the north. I think there's a number of different tactics on this, but one is, is just actually looking at the way democracy works. So there's been quite a lot of work done where you actually take these questions and challenges to communities and you, you work with them to come up with the solutions. So a huge amount of work done on citizens' juries, um, which actually, you know, there's a real sort of sense of, oh, well, you know, these people don't really, they're just interested in potholes. But when you actually start to give people the information about what's actually going on in their area, some of the issues that, that we're debating here tonight, when you actually give them the facts and the figures, and you give them the chance to speak to some of the experts, they actually start to come up with really sensible solutions. Uh, and a lot, there's been quite a lot of work done now on citizens' juries and climate change specifically. So I think that's the first thing, involving people in the conversation. Uh, and actually putting together a programme which raises awareness and, and starts to involve people in exactly the type of conversations we're having tonight. Uh, and the second thing is kind of meeting people where they are. So people are concerned at the minute. You know, people are losing their jobs. Um, they're, they're seeing their incomes fall. Um, so what, how relevant is this to them? Well, it's going to be relevant if, if their front room gets flooded um, because uh, you know the, the, uh, we've got an increased frequency of, of flooding due to climate change. Or, or it's going to affect them because of... Uh, and poor atmospheric quality. So we know that nine out of ten boroughs in Manchester, in Greater Manchester, have air quality uh, that is that it exceeds the uh, the legal limit. Uh, poor air quality that exceeds the limit, legal limit. Uh, we also know that poor air quality is costing Greater Manchester about one billion pounds every year. So when you start to get into those issues and the fact that children uh, in Greater Manchester have, we've got some of the highest levels of admissions for asthma. You, talk, you start to talk to parents about those issues and um, talk to people about their homes getting flooded um, and help them to start joining the dots. I think that that's certainly a really important way of, of, of getting this uh, in, you know, beyond the prosaic um, and into people's lives. Uh, and then the third thing is actually about, you know, there's a really interesting pamphlet published at the weekend um, about uh, community power, about trusting the people. Some of you might have read it. It's published by, uh, you know, Michael Cove Gove is a, a really big fan of this. And, and, he, and he talks about you know, how we need to put greater trust in communities to come up with the solutions, um, working alongside business and, and the state. Uh, and I think there's some really good examples now of where communities themselves are taking responsibility. So just up the road in Oldham, um, uh, the, the council there have worked with the community to establish something called um, Oldham Community Power. And that is a, a not-for-profit community enterprise, uh, community business, which is actually looking at how they can generate electricity, which will be a lower cost for residents in that area, and also providing them with uh, information about you know, insulation and so on and so forth. So you know, there is also an opportunity here for communities to actually take control of this themselves and, and start to come up with solutions. And I think that's, that's, those are some of the ways I think that we can you know, address that, that issue. Mm -hmm. I'm keen to go back to your audience for one final question or two. But Nick, before I do, um, before Centrica, you were in the Foreign Office and you've been posted to all sorts of places, including the EU, Turkey. 
One of the interesting things that comes out in these opinion polls is people talk about China quite a lot. People talk about countries that pollute much more and say, why is it down to us? Why is it down to the poorest in this country to foot the bill? What do you think about that in terms of your international viewpoint from your previous career? Just briefly, so that we can go back to... Yeah, questions. well, well uh, so, so leadership and example definitely does help in global engagement. But what, what, what I would say about um, some of the big powers, China in particular... Is, is it's, you know, the, the, the politics of China in this area is really fascinating um, because we, we know, of course, that it is not a country in which, you know, the population um, is able to express its views easily to the government, but they do. They absolutely do on this issue, directly and indirectly, and they have a lot of pressure from within China on their own government to do it. And, and, of course, you know, that, that, that government, and it's important to kind of understand and go with the grain of, you know, what is driving them. They still want to bring, you know, huge numbers of people out of poverty and to industrialise, and that requires, you know, massive further industrialisation. But they also know their people, as they get more aware of it, do not want um, uh, to live in a, pol a polluted, air-polluted space. And we've got to work with that. We've got to kind of try and... Pull that, pull that along, and and you know I think um, um, you know all, all all the signs are that Alex Sharma is doing a great job um, in kind of pulling people together, and I, you know I wonder whether you know we'll get some pretty impressive um, uh, commitments by China. And actually, when you look at the kind of broader challenge of engaging with China at the moment, here is an area in which we can try and work together. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Let's have a few more questions. Um, why don't we take? all three of those questions and then try to answer them in the next five minutes. Um, so if these two gentlemen here and then, uh, yeah, there's a question at the back as well. If you keep it brief as well. Uh, keep it brief. Uh, so uh, Nick, thank you very much. I couldn't agree with you more that China has, uh, the only place in the world I've heard of that's having environmental riots. They do. They're the only place in the world who in, within five years have de um, desulfurized their entire coal fleet. That's an astonishing achievement. And they're the only place, apart from the States and Germany, who are putting a, a billions of dollars into decarbonisation demonstration projects. Now, that's what I really want to talk to you about, Andrew. When can we get demonstration project funding? So I've hit my own red wall. Um, I'm, my, my name's Tom White. I am the CEO of a startup company based in Leeds. We've got a revolutionary new technology to capture carbon dioxide from... Uh, um, industrial emissions will save 40% of the energy requirement to do that. We've had a fantastic research program out of the University of Leeds, great. We've hit our wall because we cannot get that risk finance to develop a product to commercial, uh, commercial readiness. Other countries in the world are funding these demonstration projects, 100%, the States, Germany, China, they're doing this. We can't do that, we can't find the funding. Um, we're absolutely 0.8 on the 10-point plan, and Boris said, yes, you'll get your money. Um, we can't see it. Where's it coming from? Where are we getting the, the money to do demonstration projects at scale to prove commercial viability so that we can use British technology and not import technology for carbon capture and storage from Japan and the States, which is what's happening right now in Teesside? There's definitely one for you in a second, Andrew. Um, second question here. Thank you. Mario Robuco from West Sussex. Um, so, 
Andrew said, uh, and actually here at conference, we are all saying that we want to use net zero to basically use the opportunity for leveling up. And so the government is definitely going to um, look at spreading part, if not the most part, of this pie basically towards uh, those uh, northern areas that maybe have left behind, have been left behind in in the past. Um, in a in a context where uh, one uh, of our own MPs, for example, uh, talks about uh, southern privilege. <laughs> How can we make sure that the south of the country has uh, a, a good opportunity from net zero? Uh, I would say that, that from Cornwall to Kent, but uh, I already know Cornwall is an exception because of lithium and the batteries. <laughs> so it's going to already get investments. Thank you. And one final question at the end there. Southern privilege, that's the first time I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so how do you consolidate um, consumer choice? You know, you say you're, you're in support of consumer choice, but also you can't have a, a basically prioritised parking on, the, on busy streets like London, uh, prioritising them for electric vehicles. You know, it's very difficult to park in London. How do you consolidate the fact that you're prioritizing one group, but also saying you support consumer choice? Great, and that's one for Nick, I think. So, Andrew, why don't you ask the first one, um, and obviously also comment on uh, Southern privilege. Um, yeah, the, uh, I mean, we should take it offline. The, um, there's a fabulous net zero innovation fund, um, if you follow my Twitter. I mean, I, I try and keep up. Every day there's another project. Um, of course, a lot of this is coming anyway through higher education funding research councils. So all of them, I mean, the new head of the UKRI has said their number one priority is net zero. Uh, we've got the new uh, ARIA, uh, Science Innovation Agency. They've yet to suggest exactly what their priority area is or could be, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was also uh, related to the climate crisis. So there's, there's lots of money there. I any individual project, you know, we'll, we'll have to uh, look, but I'm very happy to try and connect you with colleagues at Bayes um, who are administering some of those funds. And there's lots and lots of good work doing, and we have to be a leader in carbon sequestering technology. So yours sounds particularly innovative, so let's hope uh, there's some money there. Look, I mean, if the hypothesis is right that this is a revolution that's going to touch every part of, of, of human life and society, as I believe, then this will benefit the entire United Kingdom. I mean, to take an example, uh, green finance is a huge domain. The government's just in, set up an infrastructure bank in the north, uh, but we've also just issued uh, the largest maiden green bond issue. Um, so if we can make the city of London a hub of green finance... Uh, and trillions of pounds have been committed to the green finance uh, revolution, then, then that will benefit, for example, London, the city, and the southeast. So uh, I do think it will touch every aspect. You know, what is it? Rising tide lifts all boats. You know, clearly there'll be some that are very place-based, uh, but if we've got a prosperous economy on the back of this transformation, that's going to benefit all of us. Sarah, perhaps your thoughts on a second question? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, on, on the Southern Privilege question, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm always very nervous about this kind of north-south uh, demarcation, um, particularly as 
I'm not from the north of England myself originally, and the idea of north has quite a different meaning uh, from where I come from. So um, I'm always cautious about you know drawing lines like that. But I I think you know there's plenty of privilege in the north as well, um, and uh, there's plenty of uh, you know uh, you made me think of the um, the, the the debate last year on Whitehaven. Uh, so there was this, you know, the, the proposal there to um, for the open cast coal mining, and there was a huge amount of sneering from, uh, you know, from from Westminster particularly about, oh, how dare they? This is terrible. Whoa. And it's like, actually, you know, we, you haven't got. If, if you're not from that place and you are the, not the person that's unemployed, you don't have a right to come and, and, and judge. So I think we have to be really careful about how we use our privilege, regardless of where we live. Um, in, in relation to this issue, and recognise that it is going to take, um, it, it needs to be, it needs to be a, a, a revolution, as, as, as Andrew says, which will benefit everyone and will affect everybody as well. Let's face it. Um, so uh, we have to just make sure that we're meeting people where they are and uh, and, and not using our own privilege to, uh, you know, to help other people what, what they should be doing. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And Nick, finally, a question for you. Consumer choice, priority parking, electric vehicles. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, well I, I guess for a company like ours, you know, consumer choice has to operate within the policy framework that the government sets. And given that you know they've set 2030 as the deadline for um, the production of um, of uh, 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 old-style vehicles, um, you know, they're going to have to. Um, we're going to have to roll out our charging. Um, infrastructure that reflects that, but you know, my own view is is that you do that with people um, uh, rather than against them, and you uh, and you find um, the best ways of, of 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 managing it. But of course, there's a balance. Um, that that the issue of consumer choice um, is going to come in a big way as well when we really get into the business of replacing boilers because you've got heat pumps, potentially hydrogen, um, and you know there there are really big um, questions there for. For, for people around as soon as the hydrogen um, opportunity and option exists, you know, what is the best for different types of, uh, of housing stock? Um, and, you know, people have very little levels of awareness of, you know, just what is required and what is coming in that mm. space and, you know, big, big public campaign around that. And that's the other thing I think that kind of underpins consumer choice effectively is real awareness of what your choices are. Just, just one thing. Yeah. I mean, if I was running a London borough, I'd want not either or, but both. So I'd want every bay and every lamppost to be um, have the potential to plug in charger. So it shouldn't be at the expense of the other. Brilliant. And on that point about raising awareness, do you keep listening to the spectators' podcasts? Do you keep coming to the spectators' events? And because that's where the best plays are going to get this awareness from. So thank you so much for coming to this panel, and thank you so much for listening to the podcast if you're listening at home. Uh, and uh, hope to see you soon. Oh, and I should thank, oh, we thank all our guests for their time as well. <laughs>